Mark 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We're going to spend uh, the next little while reflecting on this, on this text, this teaching together. If you've spent some time in um, Ottawa museums, you're probably familiar with the Crazy Kitchen at the Museum of Science and Technology. Since 1967, it's been around, and the Crazy Kitchen has been thrilling small children and making anyone over 35, like, nauseous. And, and if you haven't been to the Crazy Kitchen, I'll, I'll describe it in brief for you. The, the basic idea is it's this kitchen in a cube where you can't see anything but this one room. You can't see any walls, any of uh, the outside walls. And when you go in, your eyes perceive it as a normal kitchen, you know, somewhat dated, 1967, but kind of homey. Uh, but the room is actually on an angle. And, and so you're thrown off because your eyes and your inner ear, you know, your sense of balance, do not agree. And for some people, when they get into the crazy kitchen, uh, they're almost like physically unable to walk across the room because their, their body's senses are disagreeing with each other. And, you know, some middle-aged adults are like needing assistance from their three-year-old to, to safely cross. And, and this sounds terrible, but, you know, science, it's so much fun. And, uh, it's, and it's, but it's this disagreement with, with, between senses, between one thing you feel, one thing you sense, and another. And in today's text, we encounter a number of teachings that function a bit like a crazy kitchen in our spiritual lives because Jesus is teaching us that his life and his death will set a course for people to follow that will contradict many of our natural impulses. 
It'll, it'll feel when you walk into these teachings like something is off. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't sense right. And in many ways, the Christian life is a reversal of, of natural expectations and natural hopes. What regularly happens when we read Jesus and take him seriously is that we get thrown off balance. I mean, sometimes we read him and it makes sense immediately, but other times we're scratching our head. And today is definitely more of the, the scratch your head type. You may find yourself spiritually uneasy, a bit spiritually nauseous. You're not, you're not sure exactly what to make of everything that's found here. So here's how I want to take our passage. First, we're going to talk about the way of the cross. Jesus is going to talk about his death again. That'll be kind of just a brief intro. And then he offers three reversals. So the way of cross, and then we'll do three reversals. The way up is down, your group is not the kingdom, and your soul is more important than your arm. Middle of Mark 9 offers a decisive move by Jesus. If you notice in the opening verses there, he's beginning to shift his ministry away from the crowds, away from the attention and noise of all, this pe all these people to an intentional focus on the disciples. He leaves a place, if you were here last week, he leaves a place where he healed a boy with an unclean spirit and he passes through Galilee because he didn't want anyone to know. He's, he's trying to escape the pressure, the crowds. He, he's shirking their attention because he wants the 12 to understand the true nature of his mission. And then for the second time, at least that Mark records, he says, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, he'll be killed, and after three days rise. Now it's likely that Jesus talked about these things on a regular basis, and that over and over he's been teaching the disciples about the necessity of these things, but it's easy to get lost in the excitement of, of other moments of Jesus' life. If you had lived alongside him for three years, it would have been easy to get caught up in the healings and the miracles and the teachings even just day-to-day -day life, you know, what you had for dinner or whatever. And over and over, though, Jesus comes along and reminds his people, his disciples, there is one great reason I'm here, to die and then rise. Now, the last time Jesus had mentioned this, if you remember, this is way back in our series in Mark, Peter got in his face about it. And he's like, don't talk like that. <laughs> and, and at that point, Jesus rebuked Peter. He called him Satan, told him he was out of line. Like it was a really tough interaction uh, for our boy Peter. Uh, and so now when he reminds them of what's to come, verse 32 says, they still don't understand, but now they're afraid to ask him about it. They're like, I remember what happened last time. Peter opened his mouth. You know, he got in sort of big trouble or whatever. They decide the safest path, <laughs> do nothing, play dumb, you know, don't say, don't say anything. But the point here for us is, though Jesus did many things and said many things and healed many people, the point was to die. And today, just like in that day, many people misunderstand the purposes of Jesus. They think he's all about something, all about love, all about inclusion, all about mercy. And he is about many different kinds of things. There are many things he taught, but the great purpose was to die. And if we do not understand that, we miss the point. The way for Jesus was always going to be the way of the cross. And in the rest of this chapter, uh, or the rest of, uh, of Mark, the course of Jesus' life towards the cross, it lays down a path for his disciples, the 12, but all disciples, all of his people to follow. And just like the cross was a kind of paradox, it was an upending of natural expectations. What does a leader look like? What does a Messiah, what does a, Messiah, what does a Savior look like? So too, the way of life for God's people, it's out of alignment with the world's way of being. We walk in the footsteps of Jesus, we walk in the ways of the cross. Now what does this way of the cross look like? Let's talk about our three reversals. First, the way up is down. Verse 33, they arrive in Capernaum. 
Capernaum's a city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. So Israel, you know, a bit like a rectangle, Sea of Galilee up here, northwest, if I get my backwards directions right, up on like the top corner, that's where they at, or the, where, where they're at. We aren't sure how far they walked to get to Capernaum, but verse 33 says, or reveals, they had enough time, however long the walk was, they had enough time for a discussion. And Jesus is like, well, what'd you talk about on the road? And in verse 34, they're ashamed. Their kids caught with their hand in the cookie jar. They had spent their walking time arguing about who the greatest was. Now, in the category of unanswerable biblical questions, I want to know how the discussion started. Did Peter be like, guys, I think I'm the best disciple? You know, did, did James just start being like, oh, the Mount of Transfiguration was so great, you know, should have been there, I got to be there? Was it a blame game? They, they, you know, uh, because uh, we couldn't exercise the demon out of the boy, you know, Thaddeus, you know, it's your fault or whatever. We, we, we don't know. We don't know how the discussion started, but whatever it started, they spent their time arguing about who the greatest was. And by the time they get to Capernaum, they know they've blown it. Now look at verse 35. Jesus sat down. Now what does that mean? It means class is in session. You know, ring the bell. Rabbis in Israel, when they, when they were going to teach, they sat down. Jesus sits, some important teachings about to happen. But I think what he says is unexpected, at least to me. If you're from a churchy kind of background, you'd think that Jesus would say, stop trying to be first, right? Stop trying to be the greatest. That's not, that's not how Christians act. We, we might assume that's what he's about to tell them, but that's not what he says. Look carefully. He says, if anyone would be first, we might paraphrase, okay, you want to be great? You want to be first? Here is how you be great in the kingdom of God. And what I appreciate about this is, you know, not naming any names <coughs> myself. If you have a competitive streak, if you're ambitious, if you're driven, if you have a high energy level, if you have some of these things, Jesus doesn't come along and say, stop being the way you are. He says, if you want to be first, if you want to be great, then okay. Here's how you be great in the kingdom of God. The way up is down. The way to be first is to be last. The way to lead is to be a servant. The way to greatness is humility. And when we encounter that teaching, it feels wrong or it feels off kilter. Our ears disagree with our gut. But what it tells us is the, the way of the world, not the way of Jesus. The way of the world is not the way of the kingdom works. See, picture the typical um, org chart of a large company, you know, CEO at the top, some C-suite people, uh, then maybe some like vice presidents, upper level managers, lower level managers, and then, you know, at the bottom, you know, the, the peasants, the entry level people or whatever, down at the bottom. And, and, and org charts generally form this large pyramid, right? If you're at the top, you get the power, and the way to be first is to go up the pyramid, to, to rise in the ranks. And Jesus says, the org chart of the kingdom of God is the inverse. Because Jesus, the, great of all, the greatest of all, the name above all names, he descended to earth. He goes down the org chart to be given into the hands of sinful men so that salvation can come to everyone. The greatest becomes the least for the good of many. It's still a pyramid, but it's upside down. That's how the kingdom works. The way Jesus lived forms a kind of template for the rest of us. The greatest in the kingdom are known for their humility of service. 
And then to make it very concrete, Jesus takes a small child, not sure where this child came from, I thought it was just the 12, but there's a small child nearby, and he, and he brings him into the midst, so if they had like a little circle, brings him into the midst and says, if you receive this child in my name, in the name of Jesus, then you receive me, and you receive the one who sent me, you receive the Father as well. Now kids in that culture, not treated as they are now. Children generally had, had not very much honor, not very much power, very few rights, no status, no title, no priority. They were very low. You can think they were at the bottom of the pyramid of power. And Jesus tells the disciples, oh, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Okay. Welcome and serve those the world has deemed insignificant. Now, they're not actually insignificant, just they're, they're deemed that way. Find someone with nothing to offer and serve them. Find someone who cannot pay you back and give to them. Find someone with no rights and help them. Now, who comes to mind for you today? Who are those people today? Now, maybe children still. Some children have, have more rights and privileges and respect. Perhaps it's new immigrants or refugees. Perhaps the very poor. And just to some extent, anyone who's friendless, anyone who's awkward, anyone who's just a new person, anyone who's just different than the others, different stage of life, different anything. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be like Christ and serve those the world has labeled insignificant. Or to put it a different way, find a job in the kingdom of God that offers very little outward reward, prestige, or power and be busy with that. Now, if you've been an Ottawa person for a while, you may notice, uh, I've noticed around town, red license plates. Not white plates with red writing, but red plates with right writing. Maybe, you know, maybe you've seen these. Those plates are for embassy and diplomatic vehicles, apparently, you know, supposedly. And, and the law on this is a bit fuzzy. Any of you lawyers, you can correct me afterwards. But apparently, many Canadian laws are not directly applicable to these folks without special permission from their home country. And so what you'll notice, if you kind of watch for it, you'll see cars with red plates parking illegally, <laughs> breaking traffic rules, taking advantage of a world whose laws don't really apply to them as long as they don't kind of take it too far. Red plates in Ottawa are a bit of a symbol of taking advantage of the system, using the rights and privileges for oneself. And I think Jesus is basically telling the disciples, don't be a red plate Christian. Don't take advantage of what you've been given. If you want to be great, okay, serve. The way up is down. Second reversal. It's going to get harder. Your group is not the kingdom. Now, many commentators think that Mark has actually strung together a couple of different conversations that they, it's unlikely these kind of happened all in one sitting, you know, back to back to back. That may be why John's comment feels like a bit like a non sequitur, like, it, like it's out of place. But it seems that John, perhaps a bit smugly, maybe even proudly, in verse 38, is telling Jesus, Oh, hey, did you hear? Uh, we found someone casting out demons, but good news, we stopped him. And why? John says, Oh, because they weren't following us. Now, what do you think the look on John's face was when he said this? Did he expect a pat on the back, a little high five from Jesus, encouragement? That's not what he gets. Jesus tells him, don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't stop people like that. If they are working in my name, that's good. If they're not against us, they're for us. And he even says, if people are just wandering around giving cups of cold water to people simply because they belong to Jesus, that's our team. They're on our team. And what did Jesus mean by this answer? Well, he's opening his disciples' eyes to the truth. The kingdom of God is bigger than them. The 12 
Do not compromise, or do, do, do not compromise, do not comprise the entirety of people who long, belong to Jesus. And you know, the Apostle Paul understood the same principle. When he writes a letter to the church at Philippi, he says, I understand that people are preaching the gospel out of evil motives. They're, they're full of envy and rivalry and jealousy. And he says, I still rejoice. Is the gospel preached? Then I still rejoice. Now look, that doesn't sit right with us. That teaching hits us at an angle that doesn't kind of feel good. So I'll tell you what normally happens to many of us. We join a church, we join a denomination because the way they do things feels right to us. The way they sing, that's the way I like to sing. The theological ideas that are most precious to them, oh, those are the ones that are most precious to me too, perfect. Or maybe you join just because of the vibes. I like this church because of the way it makes me feel. Look, people join churches for uh, all kinds of reasons. Now, partly I think that's fine. As a Protestant, I don't really have an issue with lots of denominations. That's kind of a story and argument for a different day. But here's what happens next, and this is important. We universalize the particular, which just means we take our slice of the kingdom of God and we say, this is how everyone should do it. There's only a right way. I'm telling you, there's a very small and a short jump from saying, this is the right church for me to no good can be done except by our church or our denomination. Or follow us, do it our way, or don't bother. Sometimes we say it in our heart. Sometimes we say it out loud. But I'm telling you, that jump doesn't take too much effort. Now, I'm bringing this up, not just because I think it's what Jesus teaches. I I think it is. But I'm also bringing it up because that kind of attitude, it's rampant in conservative, reformed, and Presbyterian churches. I'm telling you, it's everywhere. And it often starts as a general excitement about our theology or about our confessions or our catechisms or our literature. But I'm telling you, it easily tips over into this suspicion and distrust and even active opposition to other churches. And we get to the point where We look down our little reformed nose at other churches and we say in our heart, do it our way or don't bother. And we think no one notices, but that attitude stinks. And people do notice. Listen to Jesus. Don't stop them. Stop stop stopping them. If they are fighting the same enemy, then they are on our team. See, when when you try to stop other Christians from doing good work in a different way than the way you had chosen, what you've forgotten is who the actual enemy is. Do you realize stopping someone from casting out a demon means you've accidentally joined the demon team? You've said with your actions, I'd rather join with the demons than someone, have, than someone do it a different way. You see how absurd that is? Look, if other Christians are doing mighty works in the name of Jesus, that's our team. And we have to work together on this as a church. And you can keep me, you can keep the other elders, other leaders in our church accountable to this. We have to work to keep that stench of individualism and factionalism, and really it's pride, out of our church. Jesus said, there's no place for that if you claim to follow him. Resurrection Church, I really like it. It's a small part of what God is doing in Ottawa. PCA. It's a small part of what God is doing in North America, like let alone the whole rest of the world. The kingdom is so much bigger. If they're not against us, they're for us. Third reversal. 
Your soul was more important than your arm. Now, there's a Christian pastor, uh, this guy named Ralph Venning, and he wrote a book in the 1600s called Sin, the Plague of Plagues. The title generally tells you his opinion on, on sin, and he, and he writes in this book kind of this famous quote, sin is the worst of evils, the evil of evils, and indeed the only evil. Now, in this next section, the final section, Jesus seems to go overboard with how seriously he takes sin. It feels out of balance. We're like, really? But I think we need to be calibrated to Jesus and not the other way around. Let's look at what he says. First, he says, if you cause a little one who believes in me to sin, it'd be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Now, millstones, we don't, we don't use them anymore, but they're these large, big, uh, big pieces of rock. Often they had a hole in the middle and they'd put like a log or a big stick through it. And they'd, they'd rotate them either with uh, water power or a, a donkey or something. And it would crush and mill grain. But millstone kind of became the shorthand for a thing of very large weight. And because it normally had a hole in the middle, it makes for a vivid, vivid illustration. If you picture a person sort of with their head poking through, imagine it was sitting on my shoulders and sort of giant rock, you know, sticking in every direction. Jesus says it's better to wear a millstone like a collar and to be thrown into the sea than to cause a little one who believes in Jesus to sin. Now, you have to notice first, it's not a punishment for causing someone to sin. He, he actually says it's better to die first than to cause someone to sin. Now, I don't want to brush past that. I think it should make you shift in your chair slightly. Because I'm telling you, as a parent myself who struggles, patience, with kindness, with anger, like, I'm sure I have caused my own children and other ones who believe in Jesus to sin. And have you really stopped to consider that he's saying, causing others to sin, it's so serious that death is preferable. And he isn't finished. Like, it gets worse. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. You got a foot that causes you to sin, chop that off too. Your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. He said, it's better, it's better to enter the kingdom of God crippled, lame, or blind than to be thrown into the fire of hell. Your soul is more important than your arm. Now, it seems like he's offering kind of uh, hands, feet, and eyes as general categories of sin. I don't think it's like limited to these, like what if you sin with your back or something like that. He, he, he's just saying, look, wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever you set before yourself, like whenever, however you sin, Cut that off. Your soul is more important than your eyes. The souls of little ones are more important than your life. And I think when we take that seriously, it, it feels harsh. We're like, really? This is what you really mean? And I think the question that naturally arises is why? Why would he say that? How could that be true? Well, he gives a rationale. And fair warning, it's a difficult rationale that has followed a difficult teaching. Because he says, verse, if you look at verse 43, sin that remains undealt with, it leads to unquenchable fire. Verse 45, sin that remains undealt with leads to being thrown into hell. Verse 47, the sin of the eyes can be, lead to being thrown into a hell of fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's his rationale. 
Now, Jesus is using language related to this garbage dump, Gehenna, outside Jerusalem, where the fire continually burned. It was a place of, of refuse and rubbish, stench, dead bodies sometimes there, slowly consumed by flames and decomposition, um, hence the reference to worms. Now, hell is described a number of different ways in the scriptures. I think some are probably metaphors or emblems. Others, I think, are reality. But I do you no favors to stand here and pretend that this teaching is just a scary story to make you good. I, I, can't, I can't be a pastor in good conscience and say, I don't think he really means it. Jesus is saying, sin has real stakes. An emblem or reality, if you, one does not deal with their sin, the consequence is unthinkable. And it's revolting, and it's disgusting, and the very description of it, it's intended to turn the stomach. It's supposed to give you the feeling, I don't want to go there. But the reason your foot or your hand or your eye are ultimately disposable is because stakes, the stakes are life with Jesus or life apart from Jesus in the fire with the worm. The reason this teaching is so harsh, I think, is because the stakes are so high. What Jesus wants from us, he says at the end, is to be salty, to be flavored with the kingdom, to be at peace with one another. I'm frankly unclear what it means to be salted with fire, but the rest of the passage is not ambiguous. Deal with your sin or it will have terrible consequences. Now we have a great problem. And the great problem is the sin is not in the parts of our body, but in our hearts. I can cut off my hands and still murderously hate my neighbor. And I can tear up my eyes and still be greedy. I can cut off my feet and it won't stop me from sinning. And I could go drown myself in the Ottawa River, but little ones would still sin and be sinned against. And to go back to the previous sections, we can't actually fully stop pride from creeping into our church. We will always be fighting factionalism and selfishness because there's nothing to lop off. And the desire for selfish greatness and selfish firstness, it can't ever be cut out. I mean, show me the part of your body that you can chop off and that will eliminate the desire to be first. Sin springs from the heart. And it only manifests itself in our limbs. And that's, by the way, for all the silly internet arguments about this, we don't have to go cutting off our hands because it doesn't solve the problem. The point of the teaching is you are not anywhere near serious enough about sin. That's his point. You're far too casual, far too complicit. You treat it pretty lightly, but it's like this poisonous snake curled around your legs. And it's killing you and it's killing your children. It's this restless evil. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a letter to his friend Philip Melanchthon. And he was talking to him about preaching, and he urged him, he said, preach a true mercy, not an imaginary mercy. Now, what did he mean by that? Luther meant that for mercy to be real, it must be mercy for real sins. Mercy and grace can only be preached to real sinners. And if you have no conception of sin, if you have not comprehended the depth of your own shortcomings, you will have no need for mercy. But Jesus is interested in saving real sinners, not imaginary ones. 
And so this morning, if like me, this text has felt crushing to you, if you have clearly seen the way of the cross, the way of the kingdom of God, and you're like, I am nowhere near that standard, then good news, you have begun to see that you need real mercy, not fake mercy. I mean, don't you see yourself here? A cursory look at this passage shows me how much I desire greatness, how little regard I have for fellow Christians, how lightly I treat my own sin. I've discovered in these pages I should be thrown into the sea so I stop causing other people to sin. I discover I have to lop off so many parts of myself because the sin is in everything. The problem is not with someone else somewhere else who wants to be great and this other church who's been mean to us and this other people with their sin. Like the problem is here. The call is coming from inside the house. It's too late. It's you and it's me. And the consequences are just astronomically bad. But you can't miss this last part. How did the passage begin? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they're going to kill him, and after three days he will rise. The beginning and the end of the Christian life is not just, yeah, you're really messed up. You need real mercy. It's that Jesus is a big savior and he dispenses real mercy to real bad sinners. He died to pay for the fire and the worm that you earned so you can die to your sin and live to him. That's the bottom line. You're a big sin, big sinner, great. We have a big savior. Follow his way of life, yes. Understand the way up is down, yes. Our church is not the kingdom, yes. Your sin is more serious than you ever dreamed, yes, yes, yes. Live in the pattern of his life, but do it joyfully in great hope that he is a real sinner to real, a real savior to real sinners. This is the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. I pray that God would give you ears to hear. Let's pray. Lord, we are cautiously thankful for a text like this. We need it, and yet it hurts. It, it really stings when we, when we begin to, to think about it carefully and begin to believe it. As it pierces us and crushes us, would you heal us, restore us, put us back together, not on our own terms, but on yours. Lead us in the way of the kingdom. In Christ's name, in your name, amen.